Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, I'll remind you of our text scriptures that we're using for this series on how to be led by the Holy Ghost. Two scriptures in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and 16, and one in Romans, in, uh, excuse me, Proverbs chapter 20. Romans 8, 14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. That means every child of God has a right, I believe, a responsibility to be led by the Holy Ghost in their lives. Then the question has to be asked, how is he going to do that? Verse 16 says, the Spirit himself, King James says itself, but he's not an it. The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. So he's going to bear witness with our spirits. Proverbs twenty twenty seven says, the Spirit of man, not the body of man, not the soul of man, but the spirit of man is the, candle, is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. I like another modern paraphrase on that. It says the spirit of man is the guiding lamp of the Lord. In other words, God will guide you. He will enlighten you. He will lead you by your spirit. Now, we've gone through many different services here in this series. I don't know exactly when we started it, but it's been some time ago. And we've talked about, to, um, uh, to, to a great degree, about how the number one way that the Holy Ghost is going to lead us and guide us is by the inward witness. But that's not what we always hear about. I dare say that I've heard in 30-something years of pastoring dozens, maybe hundreds of stories that people would come and tell me about how that God has guided them, he's led them, he's made his will known to them through something somebody else said or did, through a prophecy or through a vision or through a dream or something or other. And uh, and generally, the, times that the, the people that will tell you those stories are wanting you to either pray and agree with them that they'll have another experience like that, or they're looking for it on their own. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm not willing to judge or risk my future to somebody else's experience. I'm not willing to risk the will of God for my life on what somebody else experienced or how something worked for somebody else in some remote situation I'm not willing to gamble my relationship with God on somebody else's experience the experiences are fine as long as they're in line with the word of God but if they're not in line with the word then they're not worth a thing so as a result so many times most of the time it seems people magnify the visions the dreams the prophecies above the number one way that the Holy Ghost will lead you well, now, the Holy Ghost is the author of the Word, isn't he? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, by the Spirit of God himself. We know that to be true. So if the Holy Ghost is going to guide us in these, what we'll call spectacular means or measures or ways, shouldn't he be the one to tell us about how it works? Shouldn't we look to him to show us what to base our faith on and what experiences that we can expect? Well, I believe we can. So tonight I want to go through the book of Acts and talk about every time somebody had a vision, every time an angel appeared to somebody, every time they had a dream or somebody prophesied to them. And let's see if we can learn from the experiences that the Holy Ghost gave us record of about spectacular guidance and how it relates to the inward witness and being led by the Holy Ghost. Turn with me to Acts chapter 5. We're just going to go through chapter by chapter every time there's an example and look at it and identify it. 
Acts chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 17. It said, Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles, and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors, and brought them forth, and said, Go stand and speak in this temple, in the temple to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. Well, we'd certainly have to say that the angel of the Lord gave them direction, wouldn't we? But we're going to have to put this in context. See, if we just pull these scriptures out, then we'd have to say, well, see, angels will guide you. But is that really what's going on? This story begins in Acts chapter 3 where they get the man at the beautiful gate healed, where Peter and John get the man at the beautiful gate healed. Everybody comes running together and sees that this miracle has taken place. And they preach about Jesus and 5,000 people get saved. Well, the council, the religious council of the Jews, bring them before them, bring Peter and John before them. And they want to know what happened. And Peter and John tell them in no uncertain terms that it was the name of Jesus through faith in his name that made this man strong, healed him from his crippled condition. Do you remember what they did in chapter 4? They threatened them and commanded them not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. But I believe it's Acts chapter 4 and verse 19 where Peter responds and Peter answers. And he says, whether it, it be right for us to do what you tell us to do or whether we should obey God, you decide for yourselves. So then they go back to their own company. They pray. Signs and wonders and miracles begin to take place in a greater measure. All Jerusalem is filled with the knowledge of Jesus crucified and the fact that they're preaching that he's raised from the dead. That's what causes the religious leaders to put him in prison in Acts chapter 5. So here's the question. When the angel says, go stand in the temple and preach all the words of this life, is that new information? Isn't that the same thing that they said that they were going to do to begin with? Isn't that the same thing that they've already been doing in Acts chapter 3 and got 5,000 people saved after the crippled man was healed? So if we're going to put this in context, we're going to have to say that the angels really didn't give them new direction. He just told them to keep doing what they were already doing and what they already knew to do. Now, how did they know to do it? Where did they get the original idea to preach about Jesus and heal the crippled man to begin with? Do we have any record that an angel appeared to him and told him to do that? How did they know? Well, isn't that what Jesus has told them to do before he went back to heaven to be with the Father? Didn't he say, go into all the world and preach the gospel and these signs will follow them that believe in my name? So their direction for preaching Jesus to begin with that got them into this situation came from the word of God. Now, folks, I want, to see, I want you to see a recurring theme throughout the book of Acts and that is so many times not every time but many times these instances of spectacular guidance were either to confirm what they already knew to do or to keep them going in the same direction that they were already going now let me explain this to you give you an illustration for this and then we may refer back to it but I want to I'm kind of giving away the the um, the bottom line of this up front because I want you to see every time that we look at one of these examples, I want you to see how it fits. 
When I was a kid, I'd get in my parents' car. And I'd pretend like I was driving. You know how kids do that. They'll turn the wheel as far as they can that way and then turn the wheel as far as they can that way. Just like this, back and forth, back and forth. But when I started driving, I found out that's not the way you steer a car. When we're kids, we try to overdo it to make ourselves think we're involved in the real thing. But that's not the way the real thing works. Another thing I found out about cars, when I was a kid playing with a steering wheel, turning it as far as I could one way or the other, I found out that the car never moved, no matter what I did to the steering wheel. So when I started driving, I came to another realization one that you've discovered as well. And that is it's a whole lot easier to steer a car that's moving than one that's parked. Folks, that example will serve you well when it comes to be led by the Holy Ghost. It's easier for God to steer you when you're already moving than to get you from point A to point B from a dead standstill. Yet so many times people are looking for God to tell them what to do, how to get to where they want to go, or where they think they ought to go from a parked position. Let's look at the next one over in Acts chapter 7. Stephen is brought before the people and he gives his defense. Verse 54, it says, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart talking about the people, the Jews, and the ones that wound up stoning him. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. Now, folks, that's pretty violent action. It's almost as if they're cannibalizing the guy. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid, their, they laid down their clothes at the young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he said this, he fell asleep. I want you to notice something just as kind of a side note here, folks. The Bible does not say the stoning killed him. It says he fell asleep. That word asleep does not mean died. It means he fell asleep. Well, he had a vision. He saw the glory of God and he saw into heaven where Jesus is standing on the right hand of God. I personally believe the reason he's standing is because he's standing at the radio to help Stephen if he calls on him. The Bible says Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, not standing. The reason he's seated is because the, finish, the work is finished. Well, what's he standing for? Well, don't know for sure. Can't prove it for certain. But the Bible says Paul talked about those who were martyred who would not accept their deliverance. Didn't say deliverance wasn't available for them. Said they wouldn't accept their deliverance, that they might receive a better resurrection. So it's possible... I'll throw it out there for your consideration that Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father ready to help him if he calls on him. But back to our original subject, 
Is there any direction in this vision whatsoever? There's comfort. Stephen knows where he's going. He knows what it's going to be like, at least in part. Gets a glimpse. But he has a vision and there's no direction whatsoever. Look at chapter 8. We'll start in verse 26 and it says, And the angel of the Lord spoke unto Philip, saying, Arise and go into the south under the way that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all of her treasure and had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was returning and sitting in his chariot read Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself unto this chariot. Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and he asked him, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I except some man would guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. He winds up telling him about Jesus getting him saved and stopping by a roadside pool and baptizes him in water. Now, we'd have to say that the angel gave him direction, wouldn't we? But now, what was was, uh, Philip doing when the direction came? Well, we're going to have to back up to verse 5. We're going to have to get this in context to see what the direction was for. Acts chapter 8 and verse 5. said, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many that were possessed with them. And many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. What caused Philip to go down to Samaria and preach Christ? Why didn't the angel appear to him and say when he was in Jerusalem, Now Philip, I've got a plan. The will of God is for you to go down to Samaria and preach Christ, get the whole city saved. What caused Philip to leave Jerusalem to go to Samaria and preach Jesus unto him to begin with? We don't know. He's certainly involved with the apostles in the church of Jerusalem enough to know that they're preaching Jesus. He certainly knows the same thing that Peter and John knew, that the reason that you do preach Jesus is because Jesus told them to do it. But I want you to notice that there's no supernatural, there's no spectacular indication whatsoever that causes Philip to go down to Samaria other than what we would assume is him obedient, being obedient to the word of God. I would suppose that it's an inward witness that tells him what to, where to go and when to go there. But it's certainly in obedience to the word. So we've got the same situation. Philip is moving. He's acting on what he has in his heart to do, whether it's from the word or whether it's a witness from God in some other means, we don't know. But he's acting on what God told him to do or what what Jesus had said to do before. What he, I assume, would have a witness to do to begin with. And from there, God steers him in a spectacular way. He lets him know when he's through in Samaria. Apparently, his ministry was just to get people saved. Peter and John come down to Samaria and they get uh, the group filled with the Holy Ghost. So Philip's ministry is over and the Holy Ghost, uh, the angel rather, 
guides him through a vision. He's moving and God steers him. But I want you to notice that there's also the work of the Holy Ghost. The angel told him where to go. He runs into the chariot and then the Spirit of God says, go join yourself to the chariot. Turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 has got a couple. Tells us about how Paul starts off going to Damascus to persecute the church. Verse 3, and as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. That must mean his eyes were closed when he had the vision of Jesus, when the light shined around about him. When his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. Now this is clearly direction. He's got a vision. Jesus appears to him. Jesus speaks to him. We don't know that he saw Jesus, but we know that he heard him. And Jesus gives him direction about going into the city of Damascus and being told there what he would do from that point forward. So here's a supernatural or spectacular means of guidance for Paul. But I think we can all understand that this is a little bit out of the ordinary, isn't it? I didn't get saved from a blinding light. Did you? I didn't fall off an animal or out of my car. Clearly this is something that God's doing because of the plan that he has for his life. Now it goes on to tell us about Ananias and the vision that he had of the Lord. Paul's in Damascus during those three days when he can't see. Verse 10 it says, And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision... Ananias, and he said, Behold, I'm here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. So not only does Jesus give him direction, give Ananias direction about what to do, but he tells him that Paul has had another vision while he was in Damascus. And in the vision that Paul had... When he was without sight, he saw Ananias come in, in that vision, lay hands on him that he might receive his sight. Now, let's talk about Paul's vision to begin with. Paul's vision of Ananias. Is there any direction given in that vision? Not that we know of. He's acting on what Jesus has already told him to do, which is go into the city of Damascus. And from there, it'll be told what to do, told you what to do. So he's obeying what Jesus told him to do. And during that time, he sees a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him to receive his sight. There's no direction in that. It's revelation, but it's not direction. So here's a spectacular revelation that doesn't provide him any direction whatsoever. I'm sure it provided comfort for him, but it didn't give him anything to do. Now, Ananias' vision, Ananias sees the Lord. The Lord says, go to Damascus and find Saul in a certain place. 
and lay hands on him to receive his sight. And he's already seen you doing this. Ananias wants a little bit more clarification. He says, Lord, I've heard by many of this man how that he's persecuted the church, how much evil he's done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. You know, it's a, let me make another side comment here. Most Christians would have left town if they knew Saul was coming. The early believers had a backbone like a steel rod. I'm not sure the modern day church would measure up. But they heard that he'd been given authority. Heard Saul had been given authority to come persecute Christians. Put people in jail. They know he was involved with Stephen stoning. They know their lives are in danger, in jeopardy. And they stay put and worship God. I wonder if that has anything to do with Jesus appearing to people like Ananias. It's an interesting thought, huh? So I've heard about him. How he's received authority to persecute Christians in this town as well. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So here we see the reason for the spectacular means of guidance. I'm sure we figured it out already. But the Bible is real clear about telling us the purpose for why Ananias had a vision of Jesus to tell him what to do and how to minister to Saul. It was the beginning of Saul's ministry. It was not something that Ananias would have thought of on his own. It's not anything he would have had an inward witness about when he heard that Saul had been given authority to persecute the church at Damascus. He's not sitting back and saying, you know, I've just got an inward witness to witness this guy. I think I'm going to try to get him saved. That would have been a waste of time. But he does receive spectacular revelation and guidance about how to help Saul enter into his ministry. Look at chapter 10. We've got three of them here. First, it tells us about Cornelius in Caesarea, a centurion of the band called the Italian band. He's a Roman soldier. He was a devout man and one that feared God with all of his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. He saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius, when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? And he said unto him, thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodges with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the seaside, and he shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. And when the angel which spake unto Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. And when he had declared all these things unto them, he sent them to Joppa. Now what's the angel's purpose for appearing to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10? He's telling him who to go to to get saved. He's telling him who to hear from to get saved now when it says that he was a devout man he was not born again so there's no way there's no way for him to have a witness of the holy ghost about how to get saved because you got to get saved to get the witness of the holy ghost regarding the leading of god that's not to say that unsaved people can't 
receive inward impressions. But you could well understand that for an unsaved person, it would be so indistinct that the occasions, the rare occasions where somebody does recognize it are few and far between. I'll give you an example. There was a, a lady in a, a small church in, down in Texas. Brother Hagin used to tell a story about that her son had been separated from his wife and he had a little boy just less than a year old and when they had separated the the son had moved back in with his mom and he was going to work one day and just as he was about to walk out of the door he stopped and he turned around and pulled out his billfold and said mom he said here's the only picture I've got of me and my little boy he said if something were to happen to me I'd want you to have this well, that was all that he said. He got out, went out of the door, got on his motorcycle riding to work, and within 15 minutes he'd been killed in the car wreck. Well, you'd have to assume that he, that he picked up on something, that something was going to happen. But he wasn't saved, didn't know about spiritual things. I have no doubt whatsoever that the Spirit of God was trying to make contact with him to spare his life. But because he was unsaved and didn't know about spiritual things, neither did his mother really, then it wasn't something he could change. So here you've got a situation with Cornelius where he's unsaved and the angel is trying to give him direction on who to go to or who to hear from to receive Jesus. Now folks, this story, this incident really encourages me. Because God's out trying to get people saved. He's not trying to keep them from it. And if he, would do, if he would do supernatural things in the early days of the church, I think we can expect him to do spectacular and even supernatural things today. Now let's continue the story. Verse 9, it says, And on the morrow, they, as they went on their journey and drew nigh to the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And he became very hungry and would have eaten. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. And he saw heaven opened and a certain vessel descending unto him. As it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth. Wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth. And wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord. He knows who it's from. He knows who's talking to him. Not so, Lord. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spoke unto him again the second time, saying, What God has cleansed, that call not thou common. This was done three times, and the vessel was received up again into heaven. Now while Peter doubted in himself what this vision he had seen should mean, behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before at the gate. I want you to notice that this was a symbolic revelation, and he doesn't know what it means. So we'd certainly have to conclude that there's no guidance or direction in this vision that he had when he fell into the trance. He's doubting in himself what it means. In other words, he doesn't know. But he hears that there's three people at the gate that are looking for him. They called and asked whether Simon, which was surnamed Peter, were lodged there. Notice verse 19. While Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said unto him, Behold, three men seek thee. Arise, therefore, get thee down, and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. 
Now, here's the Holy Ghost talking to him. Now, we don't know how he said it. We have to assume that he said something on the inside, the voice of the Spirit within his own spirit. Now, why would the Holy Ghost speak in such a direct and forceful way concerning this situation? Because nobody's preached to the Gentiles yet. And you can see from the way Peter responds to the vision, which symbolizes God cleansing all people and making all men available for salvation through the blood of Jesus. He wouldn't be open to that without something out of the ordinary for the Holy Ghost to manifest himself. Can you see that? He says, not so, Lord. I've never touched anything unclean. Well, the Jews consider the Gentiles unclean. In fact, when he goes down in the next chapter, chapter uh, 10, and then recounts the story in chapter 11, he takes other Jews with him so that they can witness what's going on because he knows he's going to get in trouble for this. And if they hadn't been able to testify together of the Holy Ghost being poured out and people being saved and filled with the Spirit of God by speaking in other tongues, then they wouldn't have been able to prove that God was in it. Look with me to chapter 13. Wait a minute, I skipped one. Chapter 12. Verse 1, now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth hands to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. That's not the James that wrote the epistle. It's James, one of the inner circle of Jesus. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. These were the days of unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and the keepers before the Lord, before the door, kept the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison. And he smote Peter, that means he struck him on the side, And raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird yourself, and bind on your sandals. And so he did, and saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee, and follow me. And he went out and followed him, and wist not, knew not, that it was true which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. When they were past the first and the second ward, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them of his own accord, and they went out and passed passed on through one street, And forthwith the angel departed from him. Now is there any direction in this deliverance, this occasion of deliverance where the angel shows up? Nothing other than put on your clothes. So the angel is doing a work of deliverance, but he's not giving a message to him. After the angel disappears, then Peter's left to figure out what he's going to do. He goes to Mark's house, knocks on the door. You remember the story how the little girl heard it was Peter and couldn't believe it, so she didn't even open the door. She ran in and told everybody, it's Peter, it's Peter, it's Peter. They didn't believe him, believe her, knowing that Peter was in prison. Peter's standing there still knocking on the door. So the angel didn't give him direction. One of the outstanding things about this story to me is how deep asleep Peter was in, knowing that he was going to be killed the next day. wonder why that was well 
Could be that he remembered what Jesus said. When you're old, you'll be led around to places you don't want to go. He's not old yet. We might say it this way. Peter was sleeping on the word of God. So much so that the angel had to smack him a couple of times. Then wake him up good and tell him to pick up his clothes. Don't forget your shoes. And so forth. Acts chapter 13. Verse 1. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers that, such as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted the Holy Ghost said separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them they sent them away. Now here's a situation where you see Prophets and teachers, which means everybody in this uh, list of five was either a prophet or a teacher or maybe some, and it seems that Paul did, stood in both offices, prophet and teacher. So they were prophets, teachers, and or prophets and teachers. And the Holy Ghost says, we have to assume he said it through one of the prophets. The Holy Ghost said, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. Now, there's direction, but it's not something that's new direction. It doesn't say for the work whereunto I am calling them. It's indicating that they were, they were already aware, Barnabas and Saul were already aware of what God's plan was for them. They're just waiting for the right time, the right situation, the right circumstances to begin. So here again, I would submit to you, that God's steering a moving ship. Not somebody that's parked and waiting for God to do something. Then it goes on to say. So they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost left and departed. They recognized that they were being sent by the Holy Ghost. So here's a spectacular means of guidance. or means of revelation and, and direction. That confirms something they already had. Not new direction. But something that confirms what they already had. Chapter 16. They're on their second missionary journey. We'll pick up the story in chapter 16, verse 6. Now, when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. We don't know how that was, but it had to be by the inward witness or else the Holy Ghost would have given us greater information. And they came to Mysia, they essayed. That means they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. Same thing, this has got to be a witness of the Spirit some way or another. And they, passing by Mysia, came to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called for us to preach the gospel unto them. And we have to acknowledge that there was direction from the vision where the man in the vision calls him over to where he is. The man of Macedonia calls him over to where he is. But is it new direction? Well, how did they get on their second missionary journey to begin with? We see that the Holy Ghost is leading them by the inward witness or at least telling them where not to go by the inward witness when they tried to go into Asia and the Spirit suffered them not. And then they tried to go into Bithynia, 
The Spirit said, don't go there either, some way or another. Again, I have to assume that that's by the inward witness of the Holy Ghost would have told us what it was if it wasn't that. But how did they get on the second missionary journey to begin with? Let's go back to chapter 15, the end of the chapter. Chapter 15 is where they have the council at Jerusalem. And they decide on how they're going to deal with the Gentiles and the law of Moses and so forth. Let's pick up in verse 36. And it says, after some days after Paul said unto Barnabas, let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. Every city where they preached before was the first missionary journey. So verse 36 of Acts chapter 15 says that Paul came up with the idea. You decide for yourself how that happened. But Paul came up with the idea that we should go back where we were and check on everybody. I wonder if that was the inward witness, the leading of the Lord by the inward witness. Well, we know that Jesus told the disciples to go. I haven't read anything in the Bible yet where it says stop. So they finish one missionary journey, take care of the things in the, regarding the council at Jerusalem. And then Paul must have been led by the Holy Ghost in some way or another. I believe it must have been by the inward witness. To say, hey, let's go back where we've been before. On their journey, they try to add to it. They try to go to some new places that they haven't been before. And that's where the Holy Ghost starts saying, no, don't go here. Don't go into Asia. And then says, no, don't go into Bithynia. And then the vision takes place. And the man from Macedonia says, come here. And they assuredly gathered that that's where God wanted them to go. Here's God steering a moving ship once more. Chapter 19. Chapter 19 tells us about Paul at Ephesus. He spends three to three and a half years, about three and a half years, I guess, in the city of Ephesus, and he has the greatest ministry results in one place that he ever had. Verse 21, it says, And after these things were ended, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. Now, the reason I'm looking at that rather than the individual cases or individual things is because we've covered this before. I'll bring some things to your remembrance and hope you recall them. But after Paul decides, I need to go back to Jerusalem, and after that I need to go to Rome, you remember that he says to himself in chapter 20 when he speaks to the Ephesian elders sometime later, a month or two later, he says that every city he goes to, the Holy Ghost witnesses to him that bonds and afflictions are awaiting him in Jerusalem. You remember in chapter 21, he goes down to Philip's house, a certain place. Philip had seven daughters who prophesied. And Agabus, the prophet, came down there and wrapped his girdle, Paul's belt, around his hands and says, Thus saith the Lord, or thus saith the Holy Ghost, so shall they do in Jerusalem to the man that owns this girdle. You remember also the story about how they tried, they meaning Paul's company, including Luke, the author of the book of Acts, how they tried to talk Paul out of going to Jerusalem, but he wouldn't be persuaded. Finally, they said when he would not be persuaded, we gave up saying the will of the Lord be done. Now, the interpretation of that verse is very simple, and that is Paul convinced him that it was the will of God for him to go, even though he's going to be bound. Instead of them, meaning the company, 
Philip and his seven daughters. Everybody involved except Agabus, apparently, could not convince him that it was the will of God for him to not go. And that the reason that the Holy Ghost was showing him these things was to keep him from going. Now, with that in mind, I want to point something out to you. Of all the personal prophecies that we have record of that Paul received about his trip to Jerusalem and that which he purposed in the Spirit or was impressed by the Holy Ghost within his own heart to do, nearly every one of those personal prophecies was wrong. The majority of the prophecies that he received that we have record of were wrong. People got revelation from the Lord. They had a witness from the Holy Ghost of things that were going to happen. The Holy Ghost said, or Jesus said of the Holy Ghost, he'll show you things to come. But the vast majority, in fact, we don't even have one example of personal prophecies that were given to Paul that was accurate. Agabus told him what was going to happen, but he didn't try to direct him. Now turn with me over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I've never been big on personal prophecies, folks. And I recommend that you not be either. Because never in the Bible does it say, for as many as are led by prophecies, they're the sons of God. And personal prophecies, in my experience, with very, very few exceptions, come down to one of two categories. It's either somebody wanting you to think that God really uses them, or it's them thinking they know what you ought to do. Well, I'm not going to risk my future on that, are you? Let's begin in chapter 5, verse 16. Here's Paul writing to the church and says, Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything, not for everything, but in everything. We don't thank God for what the devil has done, but we can thank God in the midst of the adversity and the trial. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Then he goes on to give instruction. He says, Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying." Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesies. Why would the Holy Ghost have to tell the church don't despise prophecy? I thought prophecy was of him. It is. But even under the best of situations and circumstances, the Holy Ghost is manifesting through imperfect vessels. I wonder if this has anything to do with Paul's experience. I wonder if there's anywhere along the way on Paul's journey to Jerusalem when somebody in in a new town that he shows up in comes and says, Paul, the Holy Ghost shows me that you shouldn't go. I wonder if there was any place along the way where Paul just thought, not again. I don't want to have to go through this whole thing again and try to persuade these people that I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Certainly not outside the realm of reason, is it? I wonder if Paul was thinking that when the Holy Ghost was impressing him to write these things. He said, quench not the spirit. See, if you just start despising prophecy, 
then you can quench the Holy Ghost altogether. Quench not the Spirit, despise not prophesying. But here's a piece of advice concerning prophesying prove out all things. That's what he had to do. He had to judge what people were telling him, supposedly by the Holy Ghost, according to what he had in his own heart. Now, don't get me wrong. The revelation that every one of those people had was of the Holy Ghost. But what they did with the revelation was not. I don't know why. Maybe it's just human nature. But I don't know why we think we have to have the answers for everything. It's okay to say, you know, it seems to me that this is something that's coming down the road or that I've got a witness about thus and such. But I'm not sure what that means. What's wrong with that? But again, as I said, so many of us want to, or so many people, hopefully not us, but so many people want to be thought of as the one that God reveals stuff that Two, that he doesn't tell anybody else. One of the things I found, I made a bad mistake early on. The Lord showed me something and I told it. And man, as soon as I did, my heart quickened me. My own heart condemned me for what I did, what I said and how I said it. And the motive behind it. Now beforehand, I couldn't see that I was trying to exalt myself. But as soon as the words came out of my mouth... Man, oh man, oh man. It was like, how in the world did I not see that? And it was nearly forever, or it seemed like forever, before the Lord would show me anything else. These people that run around saying consistently, well, the Lord shows me. The Lord's not showing anybody, the Lord's not showing anything to anybody that blabs their mouth away. The ones that God shows things to are the ones that can keep his secrets. If you can't say amen, say on me because it's true. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying. Prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. All things you hear aren't going to be good. They're not going to be right. They're not going to be true. You've got to determine from the inward witness what's right and what's not. Now, folks, let me close with this. You remember, I've given you the four steps to developing in spirit. Meditate in the word, step number one. Step number two is be a doer of the word. Step number three is give the word first place in your life. And step number four is instantly obey the voice of your spirit. Brother Hagin used to make a comment, a statement regularly in teaching on this subject that I thought was real good and I think it's even better today than when I first heard it. We have a right to be led by the Holy Ghost. But we can't lead God on how he's going to lead us. And that's what it seems to me that a lot of people try to do. And a lot of the things that they try to get God to lead them in are natural things, fleshly things. We might say that people want God to lead us to the casino slot machine that's going to pay off big. That may be an exaggeration, but maybe not by much. But the thing that the Lord is going to lead you in first and foremost is in what the word says you are to be who the word of God has declared you to be 
to be who Jesus has died and raised from the dead for you to be. And since so much of spiritual development is based upon the word, if we meditate in the word, if we're doers of the word, if we give the word first place, then the word of God will have to change us to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Well, what does the Bible say about God in the image of Jesus? Well, it says that God is love and that Jesus always does the will of the Father. Which means the number one way that the Holy Ghost is going to lead and guide you is in the love walk. So the point that I want to make, and I don't want to take, this, take anything away from anybody because God will lead you and guide you even in the smallest affairs of life according to his will and his purpose, not according to ours. But first and foremost, the Holy Ghost is going to lead you to be a person of character. He's going to lead you into godly character and godly characteristics. Much more so than things of the flesh. Beth was telling me about a Facebook post she read earlier this week. Or somebody, I don't know who it was. It wasn't anybody in the church. But somebody had posted on there that they had just had the hardest time and experience of their life. Because they had to forgive somebody that didn't ask him to forgive them. Well, duh. That's what forgiveness is. It's walking in love when somebody doesn't deserve it and hadn't asked for it. It's forgiving somebody when they don't think they've done you wrong. It's forgiving when somebody thinks they're in the right. It's treating somebody the same as if they were. Those are ways that the Holy Ghost is going to lead you. Those are the things that the Holy Ghost will lead you in. That's where he'll guide you. He'll guide you into forgiveness. He'll guide you into the love world. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Holy Ghost who leads us and guides us. Make us to be who you've destined for us to be. Make us to be who Jesus died for us to be. We commit ourselves to walk in love, Father. We commit ourselves to develop in the same love that was shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Ghost when we were born again. Thank you, Father. We give you free course and reign in our lives to show us what you would have us to do. If you see fit for us to have a vision or an appearance of an angel or a voice from heaven, we yield ourselves to that, Lord, but we refuse to look for it and seek after it. We're perfectly satisfied with being led by the inward witness, the Holy Ghost within. We simply ask for your help to develop a spiritual sensitivity that we'll know when he's impressing upon our hearts. That we'll know when it's the work of the Holy Ghost within us. We ask these things in your precious and holy name. Thanking you in advance for doing them. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.